Pastor Michael. This, as we've been saying, uh, is our last Sunday here at San Felipe Park. Um, I'm really looking forward to our time going back indoors at Creekside, but at the same time, I'm really going to miss the park. It's been a beautiful setting to worship in. I feel really grateful for God's provision. The, uh, the only thing I won't miss will be the airplane flyovers. We'll see how many interrupt the sermon. All right. So, um, we're doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And we have been going chapter by chapter. What that means is that we've been looking at every text as it comes to us. We're not picking and choosing. We're letting the text guide our preaching. And I think that is a really good and healthy practice for the church, because we're letting the Word of God speak to us. Now, uh, one of the main reasons we are looking at Deuteronomy is because for many people, passages like the one we're about to read today is the reason why they reject Christianity and they reject the Bible. Because today's passage is about the death penalty. And it's the death penalty for false worship, for worshiping the wrong thing, the wrong gods. And this confirms people's worst suspicions that the Bible is full of cruelty, that the Bible is about exclusion and punishment. And so people say, this is what I hate about religion, because I believe in the God of love and peace. And what I want to show you today is that it's not a contradiction but they fit together beautifully. That in the Bible, justice and mercy kiss in perfect unison, in perfect unison. And I want to show you today that um, the Bible actually spends a great deal of attention on the rules of a fair trial, on careful proceedings. And I think that's really significant, really significant. And so I hope I'm going to show you that today. So with that in mind, let's read our text. It's a fairly long text. Um, So bear with me. We're going to start in 1621. We're going to go all the way to 1713. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses, or of three witnesses, the one who is to die 
shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days. And you shall consult them and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. According to the instructions that they give you and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. This is the word of God. Let Let me pause. So I have three points. Here's the outline. Number one, I want to show you that holiness is corporate. Secondly, we're going to get into the meat of the text. We're going to look at the rules of a fair trial. And then third, I want to show you how this applies in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at discipline in the New Testament. So first, holiness is corporate. I want to begin by acknowledging just how uncomfortable this passage makes us feel, even apart from the severity of of the death penalty. We We feel uncomfortable. We don't like the idea of imposing morality on someone else. And the reason for that is because of American individualism. That is just the culture we live in. Individualism is the belief that everyone should just do their own thing. No one should meddle in anyone else's business, and everyone should just pursue their own happiness. That's individualism. My uh, favorite example of this is from a uh, This American Life podcast episode on a man, a character named Cuervo Man. Cuervo Man, according to his bio, is the spokesman and party liaison for Cuervo Tequila. And his job is to fly around the nation. He goes to college campuses and, you know, spring break. And he throws these promotional parties. And he has this really extroverted, you know, zany personality. He puts on silly costumes. He's like this life of the party. And he goes around handing out free samples of Cuervo tequila. But the really curious thing is that he never drinks himself. He never touches the tequila. And the reason for that is because he is a recovering alcoholic. 
and it almost destroyed his life. And so he's very committed, he's very serious about maintaining sobriety. And, you know, the interview was intrigued by this, right? So she says to him, you know, have you ever seen situations where somebody has drank too much? Somebody is drinking to excess. And Cuervo Man says all the time, all the time. And then the interviewer says, well, do you ever say anything? And Cuervo Man says, never. And then she asks, why? And I want to read to you his answer. I think it's very revealing. This is what he says. I just don't think about it all that much because there's nothing I can do about it either way. And I just don't know. I think that's it. I mean, I can't make any judgment. There's nobody that I could tell you like, that guy needs to stop drinking and know it for sure. I can certainly say... Like, oh, that guy reminds me of me. That happens a lot. But when it comes down to it, it's up to them. It's just, it's just not my call. We totally understand what he's saying. He's saying it's not my place to judge. It's not my place to tell somebody how to live. That's individualism. The Bible says, the Bible says that morality is not individualistic, it is communal. There are two places in our passage at the end of verse 7 to be removed from the community. And in Israel, because they were a theocratic nation state, that meant death. Now, what warrants death, right? What sin meets the threshold of death? And the answer from our text at the, in the first few verses is idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of false gods, and it's the worship of the true God in a false way. That's idolatry. But some of you are asking, how can we know that it's happening? How can we know that there is some grave sin And so that leads me to my second point, the rules of a fair trial. So in the Bible, justice is not just getting to the right outcome, but it's going through the right process to that outcome. There has to be a fair process. There has to be a careful process, or it is not justice at all. And the Bible goes through great lengths to give us rules of due process. And when you read the commentaries and you look at the scholarship, they will tell you that this actually had a great influence on the development of the Western legal system. Because in the Bible, the rules, listen to me, in the Bible, the rules are designed to protect the accused so that there is no rush to judgment. You cannot just accuse someone, decide that they're guilty, and then seek to punish them. You can't just pre-decide that someone is guilty, even if you're sure, without due process. There has to be due process. And in fact, the more serious the charge, 
the more, se- the more severe the penalty and consequence, the more careful and rigorous must be the application of the legal process. That is the principle in the Bible. So let's take a look at our text. In verse 4, it says, if it is told you and you hear it. So what the Bible is saying is when you hear an accusation, when a charge of wrongdoing is made, the text says, then you shall inquire diligently. There has to be an investigation. And that investigation has to be full and thorough. That's what the Hebrew word diligently means. You have to examine every aspect. What is the evidence? Is the evidence clear? Or is there another way to look at it? Is there another possible explanation for it? And then the text says, you are to inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain. That word certain in the Hebrew is a very strong word. It means no doubt. The case is irrefutable because it is so clear. Let me me pause. I'm going to miss these plane flyovers. I I should savor these moments. These are my last ones. Um, So let me back up a little bit. The text says, if it is true and certain, right? And And the word certain there in the Hebrew means so that there is no doubt. So that the case is irrefutable because it's so clear. This is, by the way, the same standard in U.S. criminal court. The standard for conviction is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So that it's not, you know, that person is probably guilty. I'm 70% sure he's guilty. He sure looks like he's guilty. There's a cloud of suspicion around that person. I may not see fire, but there is a lot of smoke. No. You have to be certain of the guilt. And anything short of that, you cannot convict. And what's really interesting is that... (laughs) Let me pause one more time. I'm savoring... Um, So what that means for our criminal justice system, and again, our court system borrows heavily from the moral framework of the Bible. The principle of the criminal justice system is this. It is worse to convict an innocent person than it is to let a guilty person go free. Right? It is worse to condemn the innocent than to let the guilty go free. That is the guiding philosophy of our justice system, and that is the guiding philosophy of the Bible. And I think it is a profound and beautiful system. 
because it starts with the presumption of innocence. You must give the accused the benefit of any doubt because of the severity of the penalty. And then it is the prosecution that has to make their case. And they better prove it. There better be rock-solid evidence or conviction would be a miscarriage of justice. Let's go on. Verses 6 and 7 are the rules on witnesses. And there are two rules. The first rule in verse 6 is that there has to be two or more witnesses. Verse uh, uh, Deuteronomy 19 spells this out in greater detail. The reason for this is because a single witness can be wrong. There can be some kind of misunderstanding or, or misperception. Or it could be a false witness, a lying witness. And the penalty for a lying witness is death. This is very serious. And there has to be agreement between the witnesses. If one witness sees it one way and the other witness sees it the other way, they effectively cancel each other out because then there would be legitimate doubt. Proverbs 18.17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So that if there are two viable sides to the story, if there are two ways to look at it, and they're both reasonable, and you're not sure, you must give the benefit of doubt. Again, these are built-in protections for the accused. The second rule, verse 7, it says that the hand of the witness shall be the first to throw the stone. What that means is no hearsay. The witness must testify for themselves. They must be willing to stand there and face the accused. This is, by the way, the same standard in U.S. criminal court. They have to be subject to cross-examination. It has to be direct testimony. The witness must be willing to stand by their testimony. And the ultimate test of that is that they have to be willing to throw the first stone. Finally, in verse 8, the text tells us that in difficult cases, when the circumstances are complicated, when it requires um, some amount of technical expertise, the cases are to be tried in a higher court. Verses 8 through 13 spells this out in detail. There is a council of priests in Jerusalem, and that is the proper jurisdiction for such cases. By the way, in our denomination, in the PCA, we also have a higher court, which is presbytery. Presbytery is authorized to judge difficult and complex cases. By the way, the same rules of evidence apply. There must be a fair trial. There must be clear and incontrovertible evidence, due process. And uh, over the years, I've been involved in presbytery for 12 years now. It's not often, relatively rare, but there are such trials. There are cases where accusations of serious wrongdoing is made, and then we have to do a full investigation, and then we have to render a verdict. Before we move on to the, sec- to the last point, I want you to know that Deuteronomy 17 is not the only text that talks about the rules of a fair trial. 
There's Exodus chapter 23. There's Leviticus 19. All kinds of standards and principles. You know, for example, the accusers themselves cannot be the jury. Um, but we don't have the time to go into it in detail. But I want you to know the Bible talks about it at great length. That leads me to the third point. How does this all apply in the New Testament? So some of you are saying, well, this is all very interesting, Pastor Michael. (laughs) But how does this apply in the church? After all, we don't have the death penalty. So is this then just an obscure, archaic text? You know, maybe it has some historical interest, but it doesn't really apply to us. And the answer is no, no. If you read through the New Testament, you will see that this rule of two or more witnesses from Deuteronomy 17 is quoted three times. Three separate times it shows up. In Math- it shows up in Matthew 18, which is Jesus' famous teaching on church discipline. It is quoted again in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, again on church discipline. And then it is cited in 1 Timothy chapter 5, this time church discipline for pastors and elders. And once again, we see this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because the New Testament takes the rules and principles of a fair trial from the Old Testament and it applies it to the practice of church discipline. So, what is church discipline? Church discipline is how we address sin in the church. Remember, holiness is corporate. And the way you address sin in the church is you confront that person in love. Now, Jesus gives the principles for church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. Very important passage. Um, He lays out several steps. The first step is that if you have been sinned against, Or if you witness a sin, Jesus says, go to the offending brother and confront them and appeal to them. And then Jesus says, if they listen to you, if they repent, then good, for you have gained back your brother. But Jesus says, if they don't listen to you, the second step, is you must bring along another person. And this is where Jesus cites that rule of two or more witnesses because two people have to confirm that the person refuses to repent. And then after some time of this, right, it's not just one shot, it's not just one appeal, you are continuing to appeal to the brother. If they still refuse, the final step, Jesus says, is you must treat them as an unbeliever, and that step is called excommunication. Excommunication is the church's final step of discipline because you are removing the person from the fellowship of the church, and it is very serious. And it is a measure of last resort. Only after every effort has been exhausted only after every appeal has been made to the brother. Now I know that excommunication is a scary topic for a lot of people. And I want to acknowledge right away 
that in the history of the church, many, many times, the church has wielded this power abusively. It has been done in a heavy-handed fashion to punish people, to bully people. There has been a rush to judgment many times. And I want you to know that is not right. That is not the way of Jesus. And I want you to realize from Deuteronomy 17 that the Bible is so very concerned with a fair process that protects the accused, that gives the accused person every chance to defend themselves. Because justice is not just getting to, the, to a right outcome, but it's going through a right process. And so let's examine that. So number one, what are the grounds for excommunication? What sins meet the threshold of excommunication? And we're actually given um, several, a couple of examples of excommunication in the New Testament. They're in Acts chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is a case of financial fraud. And uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a case of adultery. These are grave and scandalous sins that harm the community of believers. And I would add to that from Deuteronomy 17, heresy and the worship of false gods. These are very serious sins that harm the peace and the purity of the church. Secondly, what is the goal of church discipline? What is the goal? I want you to know it is never to punish. It is never to shame. But the goal is always restoration and reconciliation. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, If your brother repents, rejoice, for you have gained back your brother. In the parable of the prodigal son, when the, the son returns home and repents, what does the, how does the father respond? Does he say, you know, I don't think you've really experienced the consequences of your sins. No, the father throws open his arms, embraces his returning son, and then he throws a party. He, he celebrates and he says, my son was lost, but now he is found. So that, church, listen, if at any step along the way, if there is repentance, church discipline stops. It stops. Some of you might say, well, how do we know that there is repentance? Well, let's look at the parable of the prodigal son, right? Let's look at, and in the returning son, we see three key markers of genuine repentance. And they are, number one, does the person acknowledge the wrong that they have done? Or do they deny it? Do they make excuses? Do they say, I've done nothing wrong? Number two, do they express true sorrow and contrition? Do they understand something of the gravity of their sin and are they brokenhearted about it? Number three, is there a commitment to change? Is there some effort made so that uh, the future will be different? Or is that person stubbornly holding on? Are they insisting, nothing is going to change, I'm just going to keep doing my sin? 
Again, the goal is not expulsion. The goal is restoration. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uh, addresses a member of the church who is living in open sin. Um, He was having this uh, uh, ongoing adulterous affair, and he was defiant about it. He was unrepentant about it. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, remove him from the church. And when he says that, he uses the same language, the exact same language from Deuteronomy 17. In uh, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 13, he says, purge the evil person from among you. That is a direct quote of Deuteronomy 17. Now, what is really interesting is that when you read Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, when you read 2 Corinthians, you discover that this brother, in the end, did repent. He came to his senses, and he changed. But what you discover is that the Corinthian church would not relent. They were so overzealous that they would not stop persecuting and excluding this brother so that Paul had to write in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 6 through 8 this is what he says for such a one this punishment by the majority is enough so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Paul says, receive him back. Welcome him back. I want you to know that that is always the posture of the church. We are a community of mercy. We are quick to show compassion. Eager to forgive. Because we also have been forgiven for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul writes, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That is the heart of church discipline. It is oriented towards mercy, and compassion. And it is only to be pursued in the face of persistent, stubborn unrepentance. And then when it is done, it is done as a measure of last resort. And it is done with tears and humility, with the hope of restoration, always eager to show mercy. In our denomination, we have something called the Book of Church Order, which is the Constitution. It's it's the bylaws governing our church. Chapter 27 begins the uh, extensive section on church discipline. And there are very detailed and uh, uh, numerous rules on due process. But at the very beginning, this is what the Book of Church Order says. The power which Christ has given the church, this is the power of church discipline, is for building up and not for destruction. It is to be exercised as under a dispensation of mercy 
and not of wrath. Some of you are saying, isn't it possible to be too merciful? Because it just feels like you're letting the person go scot-free. They have committed this sin. They have inflicted all of this evil and harm. How can you just forgive them? How can you just accept them without penalty, without consequence? How is that justice? How is that justice? Here is the answer. As I said, the text of Deuteronomy 17 is echoed throughout the New Testament. It is directly quoted in three different passages. And the reason is because the rules of due process and a fair trial apply to the practice of church discipline. But there is one more place where Deuteronomy 17 comes up in the Bible. It's not a direct quote, but it is reverberating in the background. And that passage is John is the Gospel of John chapter 18. John 18 is Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court. Remember, um, complicated cases are to be to go to the court of priests in Jerusalem. That's the Sanhedrin. Now, in John 18, Jesus' trial was a capital trial, which means the death penalty was being decided. And the charge was blasphemy. Very serious charge, punishable by death. Remember that the Torah, right, Deuteronomy and many other passages gives detailed rules of a fair trial. And at the time of Jesus, this this had all been fleshed out by the rabbis. So that Jewish law required that capital trials were to be conducted over no less than two days. So that there is no rush to judgment. So that passions can cool, so that the matter can be decided sober-mindedly. Furthermore, all trials were to be conducted during daylight in a public forum so that it is open to scrutiny, so that everything is out in the open, nothing is hidden. But when you read John 18, you realize that Jesus' trial was conducted in the dead of night, on the night of his arrest, cloaked in complete secrecy. Do you know why? Because it was a sham trial. Because the priests had already decided that Jesus was guilty before the trial. Do you remember Caiaphas, the high priest, said, it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish, so that they had already decided to kill him before the trial even began. Deuteronomy 17 says, there has to be multiple eyewitnesses. There's an amazing place in the trial where Jesus says, in verses 20 to 21, let me, let me read it to you. He says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. 
Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, why aren't you following the law? Why are you violating the word of God? Where are the witnesses? You have to produce two reliable witnesses that don't contradict each other. Every day I taught in the temple courts. Everything I have said is a matter of public record. There are hundreds of witnesses. Go and ask them. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is asking for a fair trial. I think this is remarkable. Even as Jesus is bound, even as he's being abused by the guards, Jesus is decrying the moral corruption of the court. He's saying you can't declare someone is guilty without due process. Where is the due process? Where is the due process? In the end, Jesus was declared guilty. The verdict was railroaded through. And he was sentenced to death. And because it was under Roman jurisdiction, it was death not by stoning as prescribed by Jewish law, but death on a Roman cross. What is the meaning of this story? If you read the gospel accounts, it states again and again, Jesus was innocent. John 18:38, Pilate examines Jesus, and then he says to the chief priests and the crowds, "I find no guilt in this man." Matthew 27:54, the centurion in charge, he sees Jesus dying, and filled with wonder, he says, "Truly, this man was innocent." Luke 23:41, the thief on the cross says to the other thief. Listen to this. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. At the center of Christianity, at the center of Christianity is the only truly righteous man who has ever lived, who kept the law of God perfectly. Every moment of his life, every breath that he took, he kept the law of God. Even at his trial, Jesus would not be complicit with a corrupt court. But he's citing Deuteronomy 17. He's imploring the court to keep the law of God, not for his sake, but for theirs. And yet, the only perfectly innocent man who has ever lived was condemned, was condemned to die the death of a sinner. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The essence of the gospel 
is an exchange. Christ, who is truly innocent, is condemned. So that you and I, who are truly guilty, might be set free. That is the gospel. It is the most beautiful message in the world. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we have seen all throughout history, in the course of human affairs, the administration of justice has so often been a miscarriage of justice. There have been countless men and women who perished under a corrupt process. What a wretched race we are. We deserve death and judgment. But you looked upon us with mercy. And in your son, you endured human injustice that we might be given divine mercy. May we likewise show mercy to each other. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.